This is Wolf's Campfire, and you're about to listen to Three Scary Cult Encounters. You can also check me out on YouTube at youtube.com slash Wolf's Campfire. With that said, whether you're sitting around a campfire, on the night shift, or even laying in bed, let my voice soothe your nightmares. I almost got married into a sacrificial cult by John Eater. I almost got married into a sacrificial cult by John Eater S18. When my partner Edna said yes to my marriage proposal, I had never been so happy. But now, after everything that has occurred in the past week, I wish she had said no. I was really excited for that day, until Edna told me that the wedding had to be in the village she grew up in on a specific day and that none of my family could attend. I was annoyed by this, and tried convincing her otherwise, but she said that this was the only way we could get married. I gave in eventually, because I loved her too much to break it off. The wedding was to take place on the night of the 21st of December, the longest night of the year. In Edna's culture, this was the only time you could get married. I had also never met any of her family before. In the early hours of the 20th, we drove northwards to the edge of the dense forest. We were driving up a dirt track into the forest until it came to a dead end. We're here, Edna said. There's nothing here though, I replied, confused. Edna began undressing. Wait, what the hell? I exclaimed. Edna explained to me. We can't bring anything from the outside world to the settlement, so we'll have to walk up naked. No frickin' way! I replied. Please, babe, for me, it's the only way. I reluctantly complied. We walked completely naked and freezing through the forest for about three hours, until out of nowhere several people in black hooded robes emerged and surrounded us. They were all armed with some sort of weapon, such as daggers, axes, and even scythes. Just as I began to panic, Edna spoke. I wish to see my father and the high priest. The hooded men escorted us to a large round clearing in the forest with a few hundred small wooden huts. The locals glared at me from the huts with a hostile demeanor as we walked through. We were taken into the largest hut where Edna's father and the high priest were waiting. You wait out here while I talk to Father and the High Priest. Everything is going to be fine. Edna told me, reassuringly. I still didn't like it. The whole feeling of the place made me a bit uneasy. But it was too late to go back by then. I thought I might as well get it over with. After a little while, Edna came back out and smiling, and I was summoned into the hut to speak to Edna's father. Edna's father was a tall middle-aged man with a long black beard which was starting to go gray. He wore a black robe like the other men and showed little emotion to anyone. So, you wish to marry my daughter? He asked calmly. Yes, sir, I would. I replied with confidence. Normally, I wouldn't let outsiders come here, but Edna tells me I can trust you. Can I? Trust me with what? I asked. Now that you have seen our settlement, you will have to stay here for the rest of your life. We cannot be exposed to the outside world under any circumstances. Is that understood? He explained. 
I was speechless. He became much more aggressive in his approach. Now listen here, boy. If you ever attempt to leave this place, we will hunt you down and kill you before you reach civilization again. Now go. The ceremony will begin tomorrow when the sun sets. I decided to play along with it. Uh, what do I wear? Nothing. Don't worry about the ceremony. The high priest will do most of the work. I left the hut and observed the surrounding area. There were several hooded men standing guard around the edge of the clearing. There was no way out. The only way to escape would be to build up trust with the people of the settlement. Just as I started to wander off around the area, I was restrained. Hey, what the frick are you doing? I asked. The person replied, I'm escorting you to your quarters. It is a part of the preparations for the ceremony. Both parties must be isolated until the sun sets. You are forbidden from all contact, food, and water. I was thrown into a hole in the ground, which was then sealed off, left alone in complete darkness. Over 24 hours later, after a long duration of intense fear and boredom, freezing in the ground, the hatch opened. I was dragged out to the center of the clearing, delirious and naked in front of a large crowd watching intently. By then, the sun had emerged from the tree line. It was time. Edna and I staggered up to the high priest and stood side by side. I was growing more and more afraid of how all this was going to conclude. The high priest was an old unmarried man with a long white beard stretching to his knees. He was the only one who wore a white robe, unlike the rest who were in black. He spoke in a thunderous deep voice, contrasting with his feeble appearance. May the settlement's elders wed present themselves. I turned around and saw a man and a woman, much older than everyone else, walk forward, disrobe and lie on the stone slab behind us. I turned to Edna and asked nervously, What's going on? Edna explained, As a part of the ritual, the oldest married couple in the village must be sacrificed to the gods so the newlywed couple can have a long and healthy marriage until it is their time to be sacrificed. I stared at her in complete horror, as the high priest and the rest of the attendants chanted in a language unknown to me. The high priest, still chanting, walked to the old man who was lying on the slab completely emotionless. Adna held my hand and said, Don't worry, they'll be with the gods soon. The high priest then took out a sharp dagger and then slid it across the man's throat followed quickly by the old woman. They both gasped for air as blood spewed out of the wide slit in their necks. I was verging on hysterical and ready to run, but there were armed men standing guard in every direction I looked. When they were dead, their bodies were removed and placed over a large fire on a spit. They were the wedding feast. My attention was diverted from roasting old couple when the high priest lit a circle of fire around Edna and I. The high priestess announced, when the fire dies down, the ritual will be complete. The fire rose several feet high, and the local people stripped off and danced naked around us, while chanting in the same strange language. Despite the fire being so blisteringly hot, I was still shaking from fear. The image of a silhouette dancing with firelight flickering on them disturbed me. But Edna had a grin on her face the whole time. She sickened me. This was not the woman I proposed to. The fire died down after a long while. We stepped out and everybody cheered. The priest spoke up. Now, before we feast, 
The newlyweds must consume the hearts of the dead. The hearts were cut out. I was given the old man's heart. Edna devoured the old woman's heart without hesitation, while I just stared at it. Go on, boy. Eat it yourself, or we'll force it down your throat whole. Edna's father pressured. I had no choice. The heart was revolting, and I gagged several times, but I managed it eventually. When I was finished, the high priest made another announcement. Now once we have feasted, the newlyweds will consummate their marriage on the slab where the elders were sacrificed. I had just begun giving up on all hope until the armed men gave up their guard and joined the feast. Everyone was drinking heavily and feasting on the elderly couple's roasted corpses. They were all in good cheer and trusted me enough by then for me to make my escape. I noticed the high priest had left the sacrificial dagger on the stone slab. I grabbed it and ran back the way I came. I heard them chasing me not far behind. When I reached the edge of the clearing, a hooded man emerged out with an axe and swung at me. He just missed, and I took my chance and stabbed him in the gut with a dagger. I had not been drinking, so I had an advantage over the others who were quite far behind. I ran for hours in what I thought was the right direction, falling over and running through the shrubbery, getting cuts and bruises all over my body. I was exhausted. I heard the men catching up with me quickly, but in the distance was a dirt track. I sprinted up the track, and to my relief, the car was not far away. I remembered we had left the key under the car, so I searched the ground hastily as they caught up. I found the key and got in the car. Edna's father appeared and fiercely smashed open the window with his axe and grabbed my neck. You fool! I told you what would happen if you ran. And at the moment, I grabbed the sacrificial dagger and stabbed the underside of his chin. He groaned in agony as I started the car and reversed out. One of the men leaped onto the car and tried to break through the windshield with his scythe. He failed as I turned around quickly, throwing him off. I drove faster than I have ever before, not looking back once. After a short while of driving, I pulled up at a gas station, walked in, and collapsed at the door. The police were called and I was sent to the hospital to be checked out. Eventually after, I recovered from my state of shock. I told the police everything. They found the clearing, but the settlement had been burnt down to the ground. There had been a mass suicide, with hundreds of bodies still burning in large bonfires when they arrived. This experience torments me in my sleep every night. Though I know that things will get better, I will never get over how the woman I loved was a part of a sacrificial, cannibalistic cult, and how I almost joined her. There is a cult at Disneyland by Fallen Angel of Oz. I lived in Anaheim my whole life, as you could probably guess. Disneyland is a pretty big deal here. My grad night party was held at the park like every other kid in Southern California, and even a lot of my friends went on to work at Disneyland after high school. You used to get the heavy traffic and even the nightly firework displays. Not even the dogs that live in my apartment building howl at the noise. Just like everything else, Disney has found its way out of the park and into normal life. When the governor of California declared a state of emergency for the virus, not even the house of Mouse was exempt. On the night before Disneyland closed, I watched from my apartment balcony as the closing ceremony ended with more than its usual number of fireworks. I'll never forget seeing the night turn into day for that moment, 
nor will I forget the cheers and screams of the patrons who stayed to watch. The last day was record-breaking, but that's not why I won't forget. It's because it was the last time I've heard sound coming from the park. Two months into the lockdown and Disneyland was still quiet. The company has tried to reopen a couple of times by now, but the lockdown continues. The quiet was actually a bit unsettling at first. For the first time in my life, there was no band music blaring or tourist and Mickey ears in the fast food places around town. The light traffic would be a relief if there was anywhere to go. Social distancing wasn't really a challenge for me because my job as a coder kept me at home anyways. However, even two months of self-quarantine would make me even start to feel stir-crazy. I needed to get out, but the only other place I could go was Walmart. Then, the other day, I was scrolling through my newsfeed when I saw an article on aerial shots of Disneyland. Sleeping Beauty's castle wasn't nearly as magical looking as it did in the commercials. Galaxy's Edge looked like the abandoned movie set of a forgotten Star Wars movie. The only thing that was maintained was the Mickey Mouse face in the lawn at the entrance. Then, I had an idea. Back in college, I was really into urban exploring and would regularly go out with friends and explore old buildings around Southern California. Mostly, we snuck around abandoned factories in LA and once checked out some dilapidated motels by Salton Sea. It's been about six years since I've graduated and once my friends and I lost interest in it as well as the rest of my friends, we stopped. We've moved on to other things since then. Last I checked Facebook, one of them was really into growing succulents. I decided that I was going to hop the fence in Disneyland and have a look around. I could only take a few pictures and post them online. The best of all, still social distance. I planned to do this last Saturday and jump the fence behind Adventureland. I figured that because the fence behind it is somewhat wooded, so if there are any security guards patrolling the park, they would be less likely to see me coming from there. On Saturday morning, I packed a small backpack of essentials, some snacks, water, gloves, and a first aid kit, and I was ready. I'm not exaggerating when I say that I live that close to the park. The downtown Disney district was just a short bus trip away. From there, it was straight ahead to Adventureland. When I found the chain-linked fence, I threw my backpack over it and then climbed over myself. I was now in Disneyland. I had the whole park to myself. I couldn't believe how quiet it was. Not even the ambiance music was playing. I threw rocks into the water near Jungle Cruise, walked around New Orleans Square, and looked in the windows of the gift shops. When it got warm in the middle of the day, I took off my shirt and took a dip in the water near Tom Sawyer's Island. I spent the entire day going from land to land, taking pictures with my phone and taking in the sights. You'd think it would get boring after a while, since rides and attractions weren't open, but it didn't. There was plenty to see, ducks in the pond, cats running in and out of bushes, and even making a game of finding hidden Mickeys. Even though I lived by the happiest place on earth, I rarely got the chance to go even when it was open. I was going to make the most of this time. Around dusk, I had just finished exploring Fantasyland and was heading towards Main Street, USA. I knew I had to leave soon before it got dark, but this was the one part of the park I hadn't checked out yet. However, this was where it started to get weird. Throughout the day, I hadn't seen a single security guard hadn't heard a single sound that was made by me. But now, I started to hear the sounds of chanting. I should have turned the other way right then, but I was curious to who else was in the park. 
especially right before nightfall. From Fantasyland, you know you've reached Main Street when you see the statue of Walt Disney holding Mickey Mouse's hand. That's where I saw, standing in a circle around the statue, were figures in black hooded cloaks. They faced within the circle towards the statue with their heads down, so I was able to quickly hide in some bushes before anyone could notice. I took a risk and crawled closer, while still remaining in the bushes. Now, I could see the statue from the side. With their heads down, I couldn't tell what they were chanting. What was this? A cult meeting? A satanic ritual? I've read about many rumors online from Disney cults to Uncle Walt being a devil worshipper, but I never took them seriously. At this moment, I was racking my brain for every conspiracy theory I'd ever heard in my life to piece this scene together. Finally, one of the hooded figures entered the circle and went up to the statue. They raised their hands to silence the crowd. The circle raised their heads and fell silent. The figure beside the statue pulled off his hood. I couldn't believe my eyes. I had seen him in recent news articles discussing failed plans to reopen Disney parks, so I knew exactly who it was, the CEO of the Disney company. Our dreams hang in this balance, he cried. In the midst of this plague, our people face hard times. Our beloved master did not build this sanctuary just for it to crumble in the face of pestilence. That is why tonight, we offer a gift to our master, so that he may grant us prosperity in the dark times. Bring out the rat! Coming out of one of the nearest buildings, a Mickey Mouse mascot was being forced towards the circle by two other hooded figures, who looked noticeably bigger and stronger than the rest. They dragged the giant mouse up to the statue, threw them onto the feet of Walt, and pinned them in place, one by the wrists over their head, and the other by their ankles. I could tell that the person inside the costume was not part of the cult, and didn't want to be there. The two figures held the mouse still as the mascot thrashed, desperately trying to get free. Rodents carry pestilence, the CEO declared and the symbol of our brotherhood is a mouse. Therefore, to appease the master, we must sacrifice a mouse. He turned around to face the statue. From his cloak, he produced a shiny blade. I couldn't believe this was happening. This had to be fake. My heart was starting to pound in my chest. I was soaked in sweat. My pulse was pounding in my ears, and I was afraid they could hear it too and discover me. We offer you this gift, the CEO continued. Grant us safety from this plague, so that we may bring back wealth. He held the knife over the mascot with both hands. For yesterday, tomorrow, and fantasy. He thrusted the knife into the mascot's chest as the circle repeat his last cry. I bit my fist to keep from screaming. I didn't notice until later the bleeding bite marks. I stared with horror as the CEO sawed the knife down the front of the body as guttural screams were muffled by the Mickey Mouse head. His face splattered with blood, but he paid it no attention as he continued his task. The mascot's kicks and struggles to be free started to slow and then stop altogether. I thought he was dead until the CEO dug into their chest with his bare hand and ripped something out. Above his head was the still-beating heart of the mascot. The blood glistened in the dying sun as it ran down the man's arms. The two big figures holding the sacrifice in place now let them go, 
allowing the body to tumble into the grass. With a red-stained grin, he dropped the heart into the grass as well. The heart continues to beat. Uncle Walt has blessed us. The circle cheered and chanted. This time, I could hear their chant. Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse. Forever, let us hold your banner high. Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse. Forever, let us hold your banner high. I recognized the words from the Mickey Mouse Club theme song. I had enough. I needed to get out of there without anyone seeing me. I crawled backwards through the bushes, holding down a choking sob. Then, my backpack caught on the branch of a bush, and when it let go, it made the bush rustle. The chanting stopped suddenly, and every head turned towards my hiding place. Who's there? demanded the CEO angrily. I panicked. I leapt up and sprinted away from the main street towards Tomorrowland. I didn't know where I was heading, but I knew I had to get away. I could hear them chasing me, calling for me, telling me to stop. I need to get out of there, but I couldn't just go back to Adventureland. That was all the way on the other side of the park. I needed to go out anywhere I could. In Tomorrowland, the group had split up to find me. I needed to hide fast. The only thing I could think of was to dive into the water by the Finding Nemo attraction, hold my breath when a pair passed by. I stayed in the water near the monorail until they decided that I had moved on to another part of the park. Relieved, I headed for the edge of the park. If I wasn't weary of lingering cultists, I would have cheered for joy when I saw the railroad that circled the park. With a final effort, I climbed over the fence and jogged away from it. When I was away from Disneyland, I faced my next challenge. I had entered the park from the west side and left from the east. How was I going to get home? Even if I had the strength to walk all the way around, I didn't want to risk being caught by those creeps. I couldn't call an Uber either, because when I reached into my pocket, I found that I had lost my phone sometime during my escape. Not only had I no way to contact home, but I also had lost my proof that I was ever there that day. I was forced to walk away from Disneyland until I found a solution. I nearly cried tears of joy when I found a bus stop and could take a ride home. I passed out from exhaustion when I got home and crashed under my bed. All night, I had nightmares about that beating heart. Every time I closed my eyes, all I saw was blood. All I could hear were the mascot's screams and the cult's chants. It was by far the worst night of my life. It's Monday now and until this afternoon, I hadn't seen any signs of the Disneyland cult. I was starting to think that I had gotten away with it until I got the mail. Along with a couple of junk flyers, it was a small box the size of a book. There was no return address and only my name was written in Sharpie in the box. My heart dropped into my stomach. I held my lost phone in my shaking hands. When I turned it on, it turned out that the memory had been wiped clean. My photos were gone for good. At first, I didn't want to share my story about what I saw at Disneyland. I was more happy keeping this to myself. What changed my mind was the note that came with my phone. At the top of the paper slip was a gold outline of a Mickey Mouse head and written in black pen was the message, you left this behind, hope to see you at reopening, B.I. I don't know about you, but I don't want to know anything more about what goes on in the Disneyland company. I just want to warn you. Don't go looking into the rumors surrounding the Disney company. Also, stay away from Disneyland until it reopens. Though, 
based on what has been on the news, that will be sooner than later. My ex-girlfriend was a cult member by Rickendickendacken123. I met my girlfriend, Catherine, about two and a half years ago. We worked in the same office building and would bump into each other from time to time and have a chat. After going back and forth for a couple of weeks, talking during lunch and coffee breaks, we started dating. I fell in love with her early on. She was a kind, compassionate, and humble person, and always seems to radiate this positive energy that would make even the gloomiest person smile. Now, one important aspect of Catherine's life was her religion. She and her whole family are a part of a religious group called The Followers, which is short for The Followers of Prophet Martin. I've never heard of it, but whatever. These days, it's like there's a new religion popping out every day. It's never really raised any concerns with me, because she never was judgmental or vindictive to others, regardless of their beliefs. At least, not that I knew of it. Now, the one thing I was skeptical about was that they zealously followed a human prophet who was supposedly able to communicate with God. But ultimately, I didn't care as long as it didn't cause any issues between us. Like not being able to have sex before marriage, etc. She respected my beliefs and I respected hers. About a month into dating, I met her parents. Catherine was, in every sense of the word, a reflection of her parents, kind, hospitable, and treated me like their own family member right from the start. So was the day when I started having some serious doubts about dating an overly religious person. So, Catherine tells us you met at work. The dad smiled while we were sitting at the dinner table. That's right, uh, we work in the same building, and... Here comes dinner. Catherine's mom waltzed into the dining room, setting down a platter with roasted chicken and potatoes. I hope you enjoyed the dinner. The father spoke again. We usually try to eat frugally out of respect to Prophet Martin, but tonight's a special occasion. I gave him a vague smile. Let's pray so we can start eating. Catherine said, and before I realized what was going on, both my hands were grabbed, Catherine on one end and her mom on the other. All three of them held their heads down with their eyes closed, so I did the same. Thank you for putting this food on our plates, Lord, and thank you for sending Prophet Martin to lead us to salvation. Without him, we would be lost sheep in the dark without a hand to guide us. Take our lives instead of his and protect him, Lord. This last sentence was repeated by all three family members in unison, and then they started eating. Obviously, I was a little freaked out by this prayer, but decided not to give it a second thought. You said you usually eat frugally, so what do you usually eat? I asked, putting a piece of chicken into my mouth. Depends, the father spoke, not looking up from his plate. Food is expensive these days, and we try to cut back on the expenses, so that we can donate to the profit. Again, I was a little shocked, but also appalled at this statement. I looked at Catherine a bit confused. That's right. The mom interjected. We give 20% of our income to the prophet. I was speechless. The family must have noticed my dumbfounded reaction, so the father decided to jump in and change the topic. Are you religious, Henry? Uh... I was still shocked at the previous statement, 
so all I could do was open my mouth dumbly. I am not, actually. I mean, I was never baptized or anything. But I'm not an atheist. I just don't have a religion, I guess. Well, sweetie, maybe you could join us in our church meetup this Sunday? The mom happily suggested, I, uh, I think that's a great idea. The father said, We don't expect to convert you to our religion or anything. We just want you to see what it is we do. What do you say? I looked over to Catherine, who gave me a reassuring smile. The smile I could never say no to. Um, sure. Why the... why not? I said. Needless to say, I was not very happy about going to a church. Especially, not one like the followers. But in the end, I tried to be positive about it, and I wanted Catherine's parents to like me. The meetup was Sunday evening. Again, this raised some flags. In a building around ten minutes away driving. When we arrived there, I expected some kind of sign on the building. Or at least, a cross. But it was just a plain building, which resembled a warehouse more than a church. Two large men in suits were waiting on each side of the door, and opened them for each attendee, saying, Praise the Prophet, with a smile. Their smiles didn't seem genuine, though. They were guards, and their job was to keep order of the place. Were they guards, and their job was to keep order of the place? I shook it off and proceeded to go inside. The interior, however, was set up like a cathedral, with rows of seats and a stage at the far end. There were already dozens of people seated, mostly families. This put me at ease a little bit. Catherine, her parents, and I took a seat at the far end of the bench. What do I need to do? I asked Catherine, who just told me to follow what everyone else was doing. Attention, everyone! A short man in a black gown appeared on the podium after around ten minutes. Prophet Martin has arrived! Everyone in the room stood up in unison and raised one hand, putting the other on their chest, bowing their heads. I quickly stood up and did the same, raising my head slightly in order to see what the fuss was about. The slim man in his forties walked into the stage. He was wearing a blue shirt with a tie, and his hair was neatly combed. He had a genuinely kind look on his face. I can't describe it, but there was some kind of charm radiating off of him even before he spoke. My children! He spread his arms, speaking with an authoritative, yet kind tone. I am pleased to see you in such large numbers here today. God is happy to have you here. He motioned with his hand for everyone to sit. I looked around and saw that everyone had an expression of bliss on their face. One middle-aged woman was muttering something like, Bless you, prophet. Having you all here fills me with joy beyond explanation, Martin continued. No matter how difficult your hardships out there are, you will have earned your place with me next to God if you follow the instructions provided by me, instructions which were gifted unto me by God himself. Cast away your ailments with your inhospitable outside world now, because with the word of God, I will heal you. Praise the prophet! Praise God! Everyone chanted in unison three times. Martin put his hands together in prayer, and his amazing grace started playing from a source I could not locate. As soon as the music started, I was filled with a sense of tranquility, 
which I hadn't ever experienced before. The next 20 minutes or so were spent singing and quoting certain things from the scriptures, and despite barely understanding anything, I immensely enjoyed the whole experience, and then Martin continued speaking. I did not ask for this life. I never was a leader. But this was God's plan. He said unto me, Martin, I demand that you save this flock, whether they want to be saved or not, by any means necessary. I do not ask of you to do what I say. He placed his hand on his chest. I ask that you do what God asks of you. You have all been blessed with God's gift of knowledge, knowledge of being in our community, which will lead you to salvation. There is no greater reward than to sit beside God in his kingdom. A man walked into the stage and gave Martin a piece of paper before disappearing again. As such, there is also no greater punishment for casting away his gifts. Those who have been blessed like us and then renounce it will suffer a fate worse than hell. There was a long pause before he continued. As you already may know, we've had many children leaving our sacred community in the past few weeks. I do not wish to punish the parents for the mistake of the seed, but rather give a warning to everyone. If you see your beloved one straying, attempt to save them. If they are beyond redemption, abandon them. Do not let your worldly love for your family members drag you down to damnation with them. God is forgiving, but even he has his limits. Martin raised his hands, and everyone stood up again. There was a prayer similar to the one at Catherine's dinner table, and then the prophet continued. Now the time has come to bid each other farewell. Offer your tribute, or if God wills it, I will choose it. A morbid silence fell onto the entire room, which seemed to last for a long time. I looked at Kat, only to see her head was down. Everyone was shuffling uncomfortably in their seats, looking around. Anyone? Martin said. There was a commotion for a few seconds, and then one young girl, no older than sixteen, stepped forward. She timidly approached the prophet, who welcomed her on stage with a reassuring smile. What is your name, child? He asked. Helena. The girl responded, looking down at her shoes. Helena, Martin repeated, gently pulling her head up by the chin. What we do here is God's work. You understand that, right? Yes, Prophet Martin. The girl responded. The prophet turned to the people and said, It was a blessing having you all here today. Go now in peace and continue to do God's righteous work. Everyone stood up and lined up in front of the stage. Martin greeted everyone by hugging them and saying something which I couldn't hear. I wasn't happy about hugging this guy, but decided to suck it up. When the time came for me to be greeted by Martin, he looked at me, stunned for a moment, but in a good way, and then he smiled. Welcome, child. Thank you for coming here. He shook my hand, not too firmly, but not too softly either. I squeezed harder and gave him a stern look. I was determined to let him know that he can't sway me with his words. He leaned in, 
unaffected by my apparent hostility, and whispered to me, We are really happy to have you here today. I tried to pull my hand away gently, but he held it firmly. Do come again next week. He said with a somewhat different, more sinister tone as he finally let go of my hand and took a step back, still smiling. I nodded, and right after moving away, he enthusiastically greeted Catherine. Thank you for coming today. Bless the prophet. One of the guards said to me on our way out. After a few minutes of small talking with Catherine's acquaintances in the parking lot, we decided to grab dinner, so we parted from her parents and entered my car. I saw one particularly luxurious car driving away from the parking lot. That's a nice car, I commented. That's Martin, Catherine said. He must be really rich from all the donations, I said, to Kat's disapproval. We drove off in silence. What was that? I asked her while we were driving. That tribute thing. Oh. She looked uncomfortable. Every week Martin chooses one girl to lay with that night. I laughed, and then I saw that she was dead serious. I was so shocked that I almost ran the red light. Wait, you're joking, right? She kept staring at me. Catherine? It's God's will. Catherine looked away. Martin, he doesn't want to do it, he... Are you freaking kidding me? Are you seriously shitting me right now? This was the first time I snapped at her. Stop it. She pleaded. He screws underage girls? I continued. Why the hell are the parents allowing this? Henry, it's... That's wrong! Catherine, you can't convince me that it's God's plan. What the hell? I can go with high taxes and the ridiculous rules of worshipping some asshole. Stop it. The scripture said it should be this way. The scriptures he wrote himself, right? Oh, this is bullshit. I know you don't understand, but this is a holy... Did he ever sleep with you? I interrupted her. She gave me a stern look before opening the door and storming out of the car. Cat! God damn it! Wait! But she didn't listen. The cars behind me were already honking, so I had to go. I haven't spoken to Cat for two days since then. But in the end, we reconciled. I apologized to her and told her that I understood her side. But in reality, I had a plan. I wanted to go to another meetup of this cult and capture some evidence, if possible. I wanted nothing more than to tell Catherine that her so-called prophet was nothing more than a fake. But maybe, if I exposed him, she and everyone else would see him for what he really was. So, instead of telling her the truth, I told her that I want to give Martin and his religion a chance to prove me wrong. Sunday came, and we were let inside the building by the same two men in suits who smiled widely. I smiled back and took my seat. The same rituals ensued as Prophet Martin appeared on stage, same outfit as last time. After the singing and quoting of scriptures, Prophet Martin paused before saying, Now, there are certain issues that we need to resolve. I told you all last time we had a bunch of heretics running away from the gift I bestowed on them. Not only that, but some of them even tried to go to the authorities. A few murmurs were heard throughout the room. God is forgiving. Martin spread his arms, 
as some large men brought in two children, a boy and a girl on stage, and forced them on their knees. But I am not. Michelle? A man stood up from the crowd, and it was obvious that this was the girl's father. Michelle, what did you do? She ran, Arthur. She ran. Just like sweet Jerry here. I could see more people standing up now, visibly panicking. Michelle, why? The father cried. You monster. The girl spoke. It just... It was me, Arthur. A woman cried, apparently Michelle's mother. I helped her escape. No one said anything for a few seconds. I looked around and saw that everyone's focus was on the stage. With shaky hands, I pulled up my phone and dialed 911, turning it towards the floor and hoping that dispatch would understand the severity of the situation and send help. You saw what he does to other girls. I will not let him use our daughter like he used the other poor girls because of your sick beliefs. The woman continued. You went against the prophet? Behind my back? The father turned to the prophet. Prophet Martin, I beg you to absolve me. I had nothing to do with this. I beg you. Prophet Martin stretched out his hand with his palm upward. Parents of the sinful seed, please step forward. He said calmly. Reluctantly, the four parents climbed on the stage and stopped in front of Martin, visibly distressed and shaking. I glanced at my phone and saw that the call was ongoing, but couldn't speak into it out of fear of being seen by the other cult members. One of the men who held the kids down took out a knife and gave it to the prophet. At this sight, the mother started weeping more hysterically. Come on, come on, come on. I kept thinking as this whole thing was unfolding and my heart threatening to jump out of my chest. You can still save yourselves. Martin said, It is too late for your children, but there is still time to save yourselves. Prophet, please, Arthur pleaded. We can still save them. They are just children. No, my child. Martin put his hand on Arthur's shoulder, offering the knife to him. They failed you. They failed God. Only death can redeem them for their sins and your own. I love you like a brother, Arthur. I don't want to do this, but I want you to be in heaven beside me and God himself. Don't you want that for yourself? He nudged the knife towards Arthur with a stern look on his face. Arthur looked down to the weapon and started crying harder, while Martin stood unshaken, never blinking and never moving his gaze away. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I can't. Arthur shook his head. Forgive me, prophet. Slowly, but deliberately, Martin lowered his knife and nodded. I forgive you, he said, and plunged the knife so quickly into Arthur's neck that it took me a moment to process what was happening. I forgive you, my child. Martin plunged the knife into his neck again and again. There were screams, and Arthur and the floor beneath him were already covered in blood by the time his dying body fell on the floor. More guards rushed in to restrain their remaining parents. I forgive you, Martin cried, 
stabbing the now lifeless body over and over. You monster! Arthur's wife cried hysterically, fighting against the guard's restraints. The other parents were on their knees, one praying, and the other begging Martin not to punish them. There is nothing more disgusting than weakness. Martin wiped the blood-stained blade on Arthur's now motionless body and slowly stood up, returning the knife to the guard, ignoring the pleading parents. Get these sinners out of my sight! More guards rushed in and ushered the parents and children out of the room. Martin continued, You all know that God is just, but also demanding. You obey him. You will receive the ultimate reward. But you refuse, and this is the outcome. God does not tolerate betrayal. Martin looked in my direction, and my blood ran cold from his piercing gaze. I looked down at my phone, and then... I felt a firm grip on both of my arms, and I was tackled on the ground before I could even realize what was going on. Get the hell off me! I yelled as my phone was pulled from my grasp. We have a snake in the garden. Bring him here. Martin said, and the two guards from the door took me to the stage as the onlookers cussed at me. I was forced to my knees in front of Martin, who knelt down so that he was inches away from my face. He was calling the police, Prophet. One of the guards said, covering the phone speaker with his hand. Thank you, Robert. The prophet sighed as his gaze was fixed on me. End the call and give him back his phone. By now, I was scared more than I've ever been in my life. This psycho just killed a devoted member of his cult in cold blood, so I could only speculate what he was going to do with the likes of me. I understand your anger, child. He spoke with false compassion in his voice. I cannot forgive you just yet, but one day, when you return to me, I will. Go screw yourself! I figured if he was going to kill me, pleading wouldn't change anything, so I decided to spite him. The prophet leaned and put one hand on my shoulder as he whispered into my ear, In two years on this exact day, you will lose a loved one. And when you do, I will welcome you back and absolve you of your sins. God has plans for you. You're gonna let me go? I calmed down and asked. What makes you think I won't go to the police? Then do so. The prophet leaned back and smiled. You cannot harm us. We are God's children. He stood up and I realized he was giving me the pass. The guard gave me back my phone and helped me up. I turned around and started towards the exit. Everyone in the room was judging me silently, everyone, including Catherine. I thought about screaming at them, demanding to know how they can support this violence and indiscriminate murder, but I knew it would be in vain. Martin had very devout followers, and nothing could change their minds. I opened the door and looked back one more time. Everyone was still staring at me. I glanced at Catherine, only to see her face devoid of any emotions or expressions. I'll never forget that look. It's as if all the love for me had vanished in an instant. I stepped outside and closed the door behind me. I beelined out of there and straight to the police. They didn't believe me at first, but when I finally convinced them that they are people in danger, they went to the address that I gave them. 
They later told me that there was a religious meeting in the building and that nothing was out of the ordinary. Even Arthur's family was there and they confirmed that Arthur himself was on a business trip. When I insisted that Arthur was killed by the prophet, they threatened to have me detained if I continued to cause trouble. So I dropped it. That was the first and last time I tried to expose the followers of Prophet Martin. I never contacted Catherine again. I was about to send her a goodbye message and delete her from all of my media, but she actually blocked me before I had the chance to do so. I never saw her at work either and never dared to ask around. Not long after that, I met a different girl and we got engaged eventually. Two years after the followers incident, on that exact date, she died in a car crash. I didn't forget about Prophet Martin's warning. No, I just thought he was a nutcase and didn't bother paying too much attention to it. In the end, my fiancé was killed by a speeding driver. The perpetrator wasn't even drunk or anything. The witnesses say he just started speeding up all of a sudden. Needless to say, I was devastated. I spent a long time grieving and even contemplated my own death. And then, one day I ran into a person who was handing out flyers. The paper had a picture of a very familiar face. You guessed it, the Prophet. Underneath the picture, it said, the followers of Prophet Martin, meetings every Sunday at 9 p.m. I smiled at the irony. The same two guards from two years ago opened the door and welcomed me with warm smiles. They couldn't have forgotten me, right? Regardless, I smiled back and entered. I heard that same song from two years ago, Amazing Grace and I was instantly filled with some sort of euphoria once again. Everyone turned to me, but not with judgmental looks this time, but rather welcoming smiles. Prophet Martin was